0: From Pure Advantage, I'm Simon Miller, and welcome to our podcast, the destination for leading edge discussion with some of the world's experts in green growth, regenerative development, business, and climate change. Our Regenerative Future, Season 2, looks at Otatu Nahiri, our forest, and stems from our collaboration with project partners Tane's Tree Trust, New Zealand's preeminent native forest experts and scientists. Together, we've taken a deep dive into the regeneration of native forests as a source of natural, spiritual, and economic value. The purpose of this series is to spark cross-sector dialogue and get people thinking about the potential for native forests in a regenerative and restorative economy. For listeners interested in a bit more, we produced a short documentary, O Naheri, and compiled an array of expert contributions and videos all hosted and freely available on pureadvantage.org and tarnestrees.org. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for being on the journey to Our Regenerative Future Season 2. Making it happen. The policies and incentives needed to stimulate and maintain an increase in the area of native forests in perpetuity. In this episode, host Vincent Herringer is joined by a talented group of panellists. Annabelle Chasrez is a partner at PWC in Auckland. Kevin Prime is a multi-generational farmer in Northland. Waihoroi Shortland is recognised within Māoridom as one of the outstanding Te Reo Māori specialists. And Dr. David Hall is a senior lecturer at Auckland's University of Technology and a thought leader in the national climate policy and research space. The group discusses what policy environment is needed to give landowners the confidence to invest in transition, and what role the New Zealand Emissions Trading Scheme plays, as well as unpacking other investment, finance instruments being developed or available to utilise in the New Zealand context. Enjoy!
1: Good day everybody, I'm Vincent Herringer. Welcome to uh, this sixth episode in our series of Otato Nahiri, produced by Pure Advantage and Tane's Tree Trust and by our friends at the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. We'll be looking at what the financial and policy incentives should be that would create an incentive for landowners to commit to permanent forests and especially indigenous forests. And we're joined today by Dr. David Hall, who's a senior lecturer at the School of Social Science and Public Policy at AUT. And he researches climate change policy and has been a contributor, especially to the Aotearoa Circle's Sustainable Finance Forum. Our second guest is Annabelle Chartres, a partner at PwC New Zealand, and she leads their sustainability and climate change practice and has been an author also of that report into biodiversity for the Aotearoa Circle. So welcome, Annabelle. Uh, our third guest is Kevin Prime, uh, whose family have farmed beef antries and lately bees on their whanau land in Matato in Northland since 1963. And Kevin is also a commissioner with the Environment Court. And then finally, Wai Roy Shortland, who was a leader in Te Reo Māori and has agreed to s- sit in on our webinar with Kevin uh, to contribute to our understanding of Te Maori, particularly in regards to our Nahiri. So, you know, one of the things we've been doing with these seminars is advertising really the opportunity for further content on our website, the Pure Advantage website, which you can find at pureadvantage.org. All of the contributors have written pieces for our our website and you'll find them there. And I think that, um, Simon, you're going to put them on the chat as we go through. So they're really worth a read. In fact, that whole website is uh, just a treasure trove of lovely information, including uh, a beautiful film that was made and is now playing both on the website, also on TVNZ On Demand, of farmer Ian Brennan, who is a really good example of someone who's converted a lot of his farm into native forest. So it's a beautiful story uh, of a Tane's Tree Trust farmer at work. As with previous episodes, we uh, look like we have a good smattering of people who are landowners, foresters, farmers and landowners, and also science and academia and other. And also a good number of people who have engaged in the material online. So thank you for that. And there's, there's more uh, going on there every time you visit. And some, uh, at least half of you have seen that documentary, which means that half can still watch it both on TVNZ and on our website. Okay, well, the question of how do we incentivize landowners to plant native trees, that really is the subject. And uh, we thought we would start with a real actual live forester and farmer. So Kevin Prime has um, a wonderful description on his website on on the website and i i would love to just read that to you and then we're going to ask kevin to describe a little bit of his experience with with farming and forestry but kevin's married to margaret they have 13 children over 30 mokapuna and two great-grandchildren and he says hindsight is a wonderful thing with the benefit of modern science techniques now and his knowledge of teo maori Uh, He wants to correct the mistakes that have been made in the past with managing the land for the benefit of future generations. Kevin, what would you regard as some of those mistakes? And I think especially in the story you quote your grandmother with instructions about what to do with the rivers.
2: Yeah, well, um, my grandmother had said to her children, "Kawe, kawe." essentially saying saying to her children and some of the grandchildren who were around at the time, not to um, cut down any trees along the waterways. And uh, I guess that didn't really happen. And she also started um, planting trees very early. I he in, in in some ways i'm
3: um, Vincent, my job here is to be a comfort blanket for my for my relation um and what he's what he's, he really wants to focus on is, is how his he's taken his lead from his grandmother, and while it was pretty broad, he's um, had to sort of learn through the experience of becoming a forester and becoming a, 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 a working farmer on the lands that he's. That have been passed down. So mm, mm. the other thing I, I think in, in addition to what Kevin's saying is he's become a model for the rest of us in the wider Natihine forest estate. He's led us been at, at the forefront of many of the initiatives that that are in front of, of Natihine now. So and I'll pick it up as you stop. <laughs>
1: Well, why is that, Kevin, and what in what ways do you think you have led the charge uh, and what have you learned as you look back on the past and now look to the future?
2: Well, for example, in my time when... I started, uh, I, I think probably going back up this I, I think you said we started in 1963. We started about 400 years ago. Uh, yeah, on our <laughs> yep. We, we have occupied, we can trace occupation 400 years to our common ancestor, um, Hinaamadu, and- um, I'm, I'm happy to be
1: stand corrected.
2: Yeah, my grandparents had planted uh, trees, um, they only planted about seven acres. Then my dad had planted about 70 acres. Then I planted about about um, 1,700 acres. So, But mine was different in that I borrowed money and all trying to do a lot more. What, um,
1: what kind of trees did you plant, Kevin?
2: Oh, mainly Pinus radiata and a few Acacia melanoxum. But I think we've learnt our... In the States now, like for example, like using a roller crusher, you find that the, the roller, the bulldozer driver anchors his machine just over a ridge and he lets the roller crusher roll down the hill. And he, even though you've told him not to go down to the streams, he can't see that it. it's not till the ropes go slack that he knows is hit the bottom and then he wind it up. So we ended up having burns that went right down to the stream. So those are lessons that we've learned, And we've learnt now that to have buffers along your stream. So we're having 50-metre buffers at minimum along all our waterways. So those are some of the lessons we've learnt and we're trying to address that now.
1: And you've also diversified the range of plants and trees that you've planted, right?
2: Yes, that's right. Well, we're, pl- we're planting mainly kahikatwa, which uh, I think most of you call tea tree, uh, or some of you call it mānuka, but to us mānuka is another plant. It's what most of you would call kānuka, I think, mm-hmm. not tea tree. Mm-hmm. So we've been planting mainly tea tree, but within that tea tree that we're planting, we're planting... um Pockets of natives like the new and, um, any other different native tree plants. Like the problem with the way we're planting them, I think we still haven't learned how nature or God plants them is that they'll, they'll drop seeds everywhere and then this, the plants would grow where they're supposed to grow, whereas human beings tend to plant them in Just put the trees and plant them in rows and that, which I don't think is natural. There must be a lot easier way we
1: can copy nature. Well, there's not a lot of straight lines in nature. True. Are you expecting to get a financial return from these natives that you're planting?
2: Well, the intention is that we do hope to be clear-felling natives in probably about. 250 to 300 years' time, but we think we're still going to need pine trees for another five um, generations of pine trees, so that's probably about five trees, 150 years. So because we still want to make money, but we will be reducing the amount of pine trees that we plant every year. We hope to phase out cattle probably in the next uh, forty years, so it's uh, not very far away. A lot earlier we could, but um, just keep enough to have the tummy and that sort of thing.
1: Um, what what would stop you from planting more natives? You you have to make a transition. Right, and you're expecting your pine trees to be harvestable, that's your expectation?
2: Yes, eventually we we would still do the normal planting regime which is about 28, 30 years mm-hmm. and to to gain some income we still have to pay the rates we still have to withdraw the, mm. the cost of uh, pest control weed control and all the other things that happen and you um, still have to Earn some income to generate
1: some income to do something with it. Yeah, yeah which, which makes sense. I mean, it's a working farm. David, this story that um, Kevin has told would be repeated all over the country and if we were ambitious or at least our ambition was to incentivise more planting of trees and in particular more planting of Native trees, as this whole series is focused on, we have mechanisms to reward people for doing that, right? We have, at the very least, an emissions trading scheme that would effectively be a carbon farming kind of model for someone like Kevin and for families like Kevin across the country.
4: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the first mechanism, of course, is timber markets. So that was what Kevin was talking about. You know, the, there's the possibility of sell timber, but then as climate change became a driving concern, yes, we've also complemented that with the emissions trading scheme. So that is a mechanism. Which enables people to make money out of growing trees and and sequestering carbon, that is pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it away in the form of forests and trees. Mm. So so yeah, it, it is enabling a, a land use which otherwise wouldn't be commercially possible because you can even plant a permanent forest and make money off that, at least while it's still Growing and sequestering um, carbon, and you don't even necessarily need to harvest trees to um, mm-hmm. to make that work. Mm-hmm. The the the, the well, That's issue, the end of the story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. so, thank
1: you very much, and good night. But,
4: yeah. I, <laughs> I know, I know that there's a butt coming, <laughs> and, and and I and I guess that the, the butt is that you know people value forests and trees for a lot of. Different reasons, and that they value different sorts of forests for different reasons. And the reason that we've been focused on native forests through the Otato and Ngahere series is that, um, you know, communities, Maori and and Pakeha value native forests for a lot of different reasons. Is, um, you know, particular relationships for Maori to native species through whakapapa and the relations that they have to particular tree species. And, and then there's also all sorts of aesthetic values. People love native birds that live in these forests. And then there's also, as as, as been discussed in some of the earlier webinars, there's possibilities to use some of these native species for timbers. There's potentially values that we don't even fully understand in regards to Rongoa maori um and and medicinal and, and other sorts of um, extractive purposes. So and the the mechanisms that we have at the moment don't necessarily value these things. And certainly the emissions trading scheme doesn't. Um, you know, it values carbon sequestration. So it is um, monetizing the capacity for trees to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And so the faster the tree grows, the more money you can earn from that. And it happens that we've spent decades perfecting the, the Pinus radiata to be an incredibly fast growing tree um, for, for timber purposes, but that works just as well for carbon sequestration purposes and you know, other exotic species and native species don't grow that fast. And so they don't earn as much money through the emissions trading scheme. So you know the the emissions trading scheme is is good at what it's designed to do which is to reward carbon sequestration but you know carbon carbon sequestration is only one aspect of the climate change problem when when we have the paris agreement you know article 2 we're committed to climate mitigation so we're committed to sequestering carbon but we're also committed to climate adaptation we need to make climate resilient Landscapes. We need to prepare for extreme weather events, um, floods, and so on. And and we need to be wary of increased fire risk and risk of introduced pests which might attack forests. And and there's a question here as to whether monoculture pines or monoculture of any any species really is is the most um, prudent choice in regards to climate adaptation, because actually, you know, monocultures tend to be quite exposed to these sorts of risks. You know, the general rule of thumb is, um, from a resilience perspective, is to have biodiversity in a forest and biodiversity in the landscape.
1: Mm.
4: So, that is where the uh, emissions trading scheme may well not be Producing the the optimal outcomes from a climate change perspective, and and then there's other questions as well around biodiversity, and and also just transition questions. But
1: so the, the ETS as it exists now is in some ways the wrong tool to be using uh, to incentivize and reward landowners like uh, Kevin's family to really advance the cause of regenerating native Nahiri, and and planting is is what you're saying. It's it's a clumsy instrument.
4: Yeah, it, it's clumsy is what I'm saying. It's um it's it's good at what it's <laughs> it's what it's designed to do, but it was never really intended to to deliver the more nuanced um, approach to the landscape that people really want to see. Where um. We're not, we're not just putting the fastest growing trees across the landscape and and optimizing carbon sequestration but a but a n- more nuanced approach where we're interweaving different sorts of land uses and and interweaving different sorts of forestry u- uses even within agricultural production i mean it tends to um, work in a much more siloed way the the emissions trading scheme and so i i, I think it's it's we, we have to be careful because it does enable forest land uses which otherwise might not have been possible, um, especially putting forest in remote areas where perhaps um, it would be too expensive to transport the, the timber out. And so, you know, it, it wouldn't get forested um, for, for timber reasons. Um, you know, the emissions trading scheme does enable permanent forest in in some of those places and that that is a good thing but it might not necessarily be enabling the right species for those sites and so it's not necessarily getting that nuance that we want with the the slogan right tree right place and right purpose
1: yeah indeed so annabelle you're a finance guru If the ETS is not the right instrument, or at least it's only one of what should be a range of instruments that could be used to reward people for regenerating and planting native forests, what other mechanisms could we look to? Uh, And I think in your excellent piece, you list four. I don't know if you want to rattle through those four now.
5: I can certainly do that, Um, Vince. I, I think the first thing before I do it, though, is both Kevin and David have pointed out that there's this real issue because we're facing into the need to to function in economies and societies where we need cold hard cash. So there is a need for a return on investment of in some way, shape or form. Yeah. While at the same time, there's this issue with being able to value the other values or outcomes or impact that we get from, in this particular case, from native forestry. And that's where there seems to be the disconnect in what we're looking at. The other thing, of course, is, what we need to do with native forestry is is do it at scale so this is not a case of planting two trees every year it's a case of being able to to find financing yeah. instruments and mechanisms that can really turn the dial around regeneration of biodiversity and and affecting some of the the negative change we've made on our landscapes yeah. so yeah. The four instruments I, I wrote about are certainly not the only ones. They're just, I suppose, pretty commonly known ones. The other thing is that they're not mutually exclusive. So there is not one size fits all. And just yeah. as the ETS is a blunt instrument that serves one purpose, it's also useful, as as, as David mentioned. You know, it's, it's not something that we should do away with. It's just that we need other things and better things. So... Of the four that I mentioned, the first one was green bonds, which are pretty well established as a financial instrument, both in New Zealand increasingly, but also very much internationally. And in terms of what they are and the difference between them and in a more traditional bond, is that they are issued to actually fund a project or investment that that's going to drive a really clear environmental benefit. In terms of how that could fit with this issue we're trying to solve around native forestry, a green bond could, for example, fund seedlings or labour or maintenance of the forest. And then the issuer just needs to to evidence that the positive change that's driven out of that. So that's one thing that that could be used. And then there's the possibility with green bonds, because they're really established, of having formal certification in place. So, you know, with any financial instrument, with anything we look at, there has to be rigor around how the benefits are appraised or how the outcomes are appraised and yeah. that fits for both green bonds but any anything we look at
1: and I think a uh, um, and Z were one of the first to issue green bonds in New Zealand I, I, I seem to remember um, funding a, a geothermal facility for contact energy yeah um, that's right I'm yeah digging into my deep past as a um, As a business reporter. But so these mechanisms are quite commercial, right? We're not talking about necessarily um, a charitable exercise, these are long term investments by institutions
5: absolutely and there's a very very clear commercial benefit that comes out the other side and that's what i suppose we're facing into with native forestry in terms of defining that benefit in a way that is attractive to investors and again on a scale that that, that means it's you know commercially viable in the market Yes, um, and and you're right. Contact Energy has issued has issued green bonds. We've seen some from Auckland Council. Argosy Property have done the same. Now those have all been for different things, not for native forestry, but there's certainly a history of them being issued in New Zealand, and they are increasingly being used as as a, a source of funding. Yeah. The second thing that we're starting to see a little bit more, and um, particularly I would say this year, is sustainability linked loans. And this is where an organisation is looking to have a loan where the interest charged to the borrower and the performance of the loan is is set against some predefined environmental or social governance criteria. So if they meet certain criteria, then they'll get a discount on their rate. If they don't, then um, the rate is higher in terms of repayments Mm. and the the agreed threshold is part of the criteria of how that loan is set up at the outset. I think the most recent one we've seen in the market in New Zealand is BNZ in Southern Pastures. They issued one a couple of months ago, but Sinlay have done the same, Contact Energy again have done the same in terms of having these predefined criteria driving very specific outcomes that's going to, give them a discounted rate on, on whatever their loan is. Why that's quite attractive is, of course, you're getting a discount on your your lending, and then for the banks, it's an opportunity for them to de-risk their loan book as well. So, increasingly, as environmental and social and governance metrics come into play in terms of how a bank looks at its loan book, these sorts of products are going to be, I think, increasingly common in the market. And you know, at the moment, they're a great PR exercise for lots of organisations who are who are seeing who want to be seen to progress their environmental credentials in the market as much as
1: anything? Well, I suspect that both with green, well, in fact, all three, green bonds, green loans, and also green funds, which I think you're going to be talking about next, is the potential for uh, the alternative being you might be investing in a stranded asset. If you are investing as a bank or as a fund or an institution of some sort, there's a possibility you're a investments, whether they be fossil fuels or some sort of polluting factory or whatever or damaging practice, there is a possibility of you being stranded with this climate unfriendly investment, right?
5: Absolutely, and uh, the, the other element of that, that sort of the negative element, is that if you are not doing environmentally or socially positive activity through the financing that you are, you're accessing, um, your ability to access fund is going to access fund financing is going to become more limited. Yes, and we're already seeing as a result of climate change, uh, you know, talking to banks. In Australia and in parts of Europe and the UK, access to funding is getting more difficult for those organisations and sectors that have, you know, high risk, whether it's from environmental degradation or whether it's from high emissions. And I am sure we'll start to see that in New
1: Zealand as well. Yes. Uh, Well, let's just touch on the third one very quickly, which, uh, no, I won't put words in your mouth. What is the third category (laughs) (laughs)
5: <laughs> green funds. <laughs> and green, this fund, is a little yeah. bit different because yeah. it's 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 you know, it's a it's a bucket or a a portfolio of investments and what we're seeing is both negative and positive screening in terms of the investments that are going to a green fund. So choosing not to invest in certain things because of the negative externalities associated with that particular industry or company or, or idea or choosing instead to uh, use positive screening and think about impact investing around ideas, organisations, solutions that have a positive impact on the environment or society and we're seeing more and more of that starting to happen as well, this idea of impact investing. In New Zealand, still early days, but there are increasingly some impact funds starting to set up. And the idea, certainly from an investor perspective, that the negative screening goes without saying is happening all over the world. So you're seeing some of the big investment funds, the sovereign wealth funds, superannuation funds, KiwiSaver here, choosing to limit investment or actually reverse their investment, you know, so disinvest from either industries or sectors or organisations that are having a negative impact or having a high um, emission space. The the fourth
1: one, I know you're you're going to mention biodiversity credits, but I'd quite like to just hold that thought because we'll explore that in some depth. But I wanted to ask Kevin, uh, thank you Annabelle, this pool of capital that Annabelle has been talking about. Have you been able, as a farmer, as a forester, as a farmer, have you been able to access any of this green capital to fund your business?
2: No, we haven't. We haven't tried any of it to date at all. I think it's being looked at. I I, I we did get an email from someone who did an assessment and said we have. 300,000-odd sitting in credits, and I, I wasn't aware of that, and we haven't tapped into it either, and I don't think we wish to tap into it.
1: Uh-huh. Do you stuff. mean credit as in emissions trading credits?
2: Yeah, the carbon credits.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. What would stop you from cashing that in?
2: Well, I, I guess I think we'd have to pay back if we cut the trees down.
1: Yes, I guess you would. Hmm. Where so is
2: that? I, I, I'm not paying back, just don't, don't go there. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because your business model is still around harvesting. In, in essence, yes. Yeah. David, in your experience, the, the, the sort of wash of capital that's coming down from large institutions, is it having an effect on green investments and in particular on forestry? Have you noticed any impact yet?
4: Well, yeah, there's certainly investors moving into the carbon farming space and the, um, the creation of, of permanent forests and, and pine forests, which are generating that revenue from the emissions trading scheme and producing units that might be um, used for offsetting internationally. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the real challenge is to steer that Flow of capital and that wish to invest um, towards the most environmentally sound and the most um, socially just outcomes. And, you yes. know, we've seen that backlash already from the investment into these sorts of forests. And I think, you know, we'll see more of that investment. And, and some of that may well be the right land use for the particular sites that they've been installed on. But you know I think a lot of landowners and a lot of communities are not going to want that as a as a large-scale land use change across the whole country and so you know we're going to have to pivot towards towards outcomes that have a better balance of you know what I was describing yes. before where it's it's mitigation, as well as adaptation, as well as biodiversity enhancements, as well as regional economic opportunities. And I, this is why in a lot of my work, I've been um, attracted to the idea of nature-based solutions. Uh, so, this is an idea which is emerging in international climate change policy and strategy And this really makes explicit that idea that we shouldn't be just looking at using land use and ecosystem restoration to deliver climate mitigation alone. We should be striking that balance across multiple outcomes and using nature and using ecosystems to deliver that multifunctional outcome.
1: Because, And just to underline the point of what you're saying, because the capital that Annabelle has talked about, needs a return on investment even if it's impact investing it still needs a return on investment and at the moment unless you're harvesting trees really the only alternative is the emissions trading scheme for returning some sort of value back to your investors to your bank uh, or to the you know, the buyers of your bonds yeah and and so really what we need is another kind of mechanism Multiple mechanisms, as Annabelle has said, you know, not they not mutually exclusive, and that that's where I suppose this idea of a biodiversity credit comes in. So, t- t- tell us about these miracle drugs. I don't know if it's a
5: miracle drug, but it's it's certainly <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly worth having a go at. So, I, in terms of the the instruments I talked about before. They are, I suppose they are all green versions of existing financial instruments in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Yeah. And similarly, a biodiversity credit moves away from that traditional sort of financing product a little bit because it's trying to create a value um, that represents a return on investment um, for an owner before they can establish another revenue stream from from the forest and so it's 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 trying to say there is a way to incentivize people organizations to invest in native forestry even if that initial revenue stream that you might get from other alternative sources of planting is not there to start with so it's almost saying will give you a return by doing nothing and just doing the right thing. So it's creating a different value structure in some respects, appreciating that with native forestry in particular, and and David talked about this before, if you're looking at it from a sequestering perspective, the reality is that Pinus radiata is a much more commercially viable solution for a carbon revenue stream, the native forestry, particularly in the early decades of growing it. Mm-hmm. With a biodiversity credit or a biodiversity payment, it creates a revenue stream based on the environmental or social benefits that that native forest, that biodiverse forest is going to provide ahead of the sequestration revenue that might come later. And it certainly provides an alternative to the revenue that would come from, say, rotational pine and the the timber that could be cut down. So the idea, of course, with something like this is that it's finding the source of the funding to make that payment, Um, and David can talk about this with much greater um, (laughs) detail, but, you know, in many respects, it does require the government to step in and say, hey, we will fund you to not chop down a tree and not to plant something that's a monoculture or an exotic species it's yeah. saying we put a value on the biodiversity you're creating yes. by by planting natives and by planting a mix of natives
1: we've talked about the intrinsic value of forests in their own right as having values that are beyond just timber or aesthetic you know in their complete sense value Forests that have value just by being forests is something that's a theme that's come really strongly through this whole episode series. And what you're saying is the biodiversity credit is a mechanism that would honor that and reward people for just planting and maintaining and regenerating forests for their own sake.
5: Yeah. it's putting value, I was going to say, it's it's putting value on that concept of of the ecosystem, and it's a really, really difficult thing to value, but it's saying that ecosystem services deserve a value, and this is one way of creating that.
1: Yes. It's still funny, isn't it, that we use the words ecosystem services as if they are still in service of us. And uh, it does remind me of human resources. You know, they're not people, they're human resources. Anyway, um, we're going to come back to that because that's a very interesting question looked at from an Indigenous point of view. But I'd like to ask David if you could just explain the mechanics of biodiversity credits. How do these things work?
4: Yeah, just, just to emphasise that, that, that point that you were just making, actually, I mean, I also find the language quite quite troubling around this of incentives and services. I mean, I actually think of it in terms of capabilities, like how do we enhance the capabilities of people, of tangata whenua, of all landowners to um, to do and to deliver the sorts of outcomes that they really want to produce and, and, and to pursue those kinds of value that they really appreciate from the forest. And, you know, a biodiversity credit is one way. I mean, I tend to talk of it more broadly in terms of a biodiversity payment because a biodiversity credit tends to imply an offsetting scheme like the emissions trading scheme. Uh-huh. But yeah. there's just one possible mechanism for creating that payment. And that payment is what would potentially enable people to deliver those outcomes. So, you know, we, we already have kinds of biodiversity payment in the system already, you know, things like the 1 billion trees, uh, direct landowner grants were, you know, an output-based payment where landowners were provided some cash, which made up some of the costs of, of native forest establishment. There's also easement schemes like the um, QE2 National Trust, where people are paid to to retire land and essentially that's what it's doing it's it's creating a kind of a payment for those um biodiversity outcomes but i think you know these schemes that we have at the moment clearly aren't doing enough to address that disadvantage that native species need um relative to to fast growing exotics like Mm -hmm. pine trees so you know we really need to look at something bigger biodiversity offsetting is one possible option but you know, another scheme, another mechanism is is outcomes-based payments where landowners are paid to produce and to deliver those biodiversity outcomes um, in recognition of the public value that they're creating. Mm-hmm. And I think I like this because, um, you know, Restoring and protecting biodiversity on a farm, on on a landscape could become part of agricultural production. It could be become another yield that sits alongside wool and yes. meat and, and dairy. And so that farmers uh, are not just looking for those traditional agricultural outputs, they're also looking to enhance their biodiversity outputs as part of their farm yes. system, uh, you know, an agri- agroecological farming system. And it's so,
1: conceivable, can I just interrupt with a yep. thought, that it's conceivable, for instance, if you were a Fonterra farmer, that part of your... Um, payment from Fonterra would be your good practice around waterways and and you know clean and planting around waterways to maintain a clean. So not just a compliance exercise that comes at a cost to a farmer, but it could be that that becomes part of your payment for being part of the Fonterra pandemic. exactly.
4: And and it goes back to that um, issue that I started with it. These payments enhance the capabilities of farmers and landowners to to undertake these activities because you know riparian plantings and um, planting up gullies and erosion-prone slopes they all cost money and um, you know most landowners and land managers would love to do more of these activities if they could but they just lack the time and the money to do so and mm-hmm. um, and at the larger scale you know, a biodiversity payment like this as well could make some of those financial instruments that Annabelle was talking about more viable. Um, I've looked at some of this through the Climate Innovation Lab project, which um, is a partnership with ANZ. And we've looked at things like green bonds for native trees. Um, And it's certainly possible, but it would require incredibly patient investors because, the the returns are just that further and long coming um, because the native trees grow slower, so it really stretches. It stretches the patience of investors where you're looking at, you know, not harvesting trees in 25, 30 years like in pine plantations, but 50 years or beyond. So that really stretches the patience of investors. But if there was something like a biodiversity payment that those sorts of forests were eligible for and the pine plantations weren't, then there's a bit of cash flow along the way there that would help to make that uh, financial instrument more viable.
1: Mm. So it it sounds wonderful, and let's get there faster. But what's the reality? You you both have written a piece for uh, Tierra Circle. It was an excellent report. You've submitted it. Well, I don't know if you've submitted it, but you published it. Did you get a response from industry and from government around the idea of biodiversity payments?
5: We didn't touch so much on biodiversity payments in that. In that particular paper, it was it was very focused on reform of the ETS uh-huh. to to consider natives more fully and uh, and to make amendments to the things that just were a bit creaky around you know, creating an, a level playing field was a was a term that we talked about a lot. So things like the lookup tables for natives, the the minimum per hectare size, those sorts of things, and then understanding how to address the the delta between the cost of native planting versus the cost of, of exotics. Yes. But just just picking up on that question, Vincent, I'm what we're seeing some really encouraging signs with some of the clients we're working with at PWC, some of the heavy emitters in New Zealand who are looking at the carbon pricing volatility and, and recognising that because of their compliance obligations under the ETS, they need to think about managing that risk because it's essentially a cost item on their balance sheet that is just going up each year. What's really encouraging is that with with some organisations, they are taking more of a values-based approach to how they're addressing this. So, they're looking at forestry options. They have this commercial return they need to generate they need a stable and recurring carbon revenue from what they're choosing to plant if they're looking at forestry but they're also trying to understand how they can do mixed plantation how they can do permanent and how they can do a proportion of natives as well because they see that as part of the legacy of their organization. And that's really, really encouraging to see. Um, similarly, the, the Drylands partnership between Z Energy and Air New Zealand and is it Contact and Meridian, I may have got mm-hmm. some of the players wrong. But they uh, they are we're looking at they're looking at a mix in terms of what they've done partnerships around both exotics but also natives as well. So trying to bring more natives into the mix. It's not perfect because the balance is always in Favour of of exotics because of that high sequestration rate, but more values based decisions, legacy impact is coming into play, which is really encouraging to see.
4: Mm. Mm. Yeah, i encouraging. I just add Vincent that you know it might seem strange to think of people being paid for biodiversity, but it might have seemed very strange a few decades ago to think of people being paid for carbon. You know the system these systems keep changing and the system at the moment doesn't reward that, but there's no reason to think that it won't now. Um, you know, I, I re- remember even for just four years ago, I gave a talk on um, on 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 the idea of bonds for native forests. And um, we were talking about some of these issues and a forester said, you know, I've planted millions of trees in my life and the idea that government's ever going to pay for trees again is just absolute rubbish and yet within months the um, 1 billion trees program had been announced and indeed the government was paying people to plant trees again and so you know we, we should just never get stuck in in thinking that the system that we have now is the system that we're destined to have forever these are these institutions these policy mechanisms are all of our creation and if if they are enabling and empowering things that are of genuine human value, which native forests are, then I think um, there, there's a case to be made to to design and create and implement them.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. It turns out change is actually possible. So thank you for that. I think that's added a lot of light to the issues of you know, funding mechanisms and capital flow and so on. And um, as usual, I've left the questions to the last nine minutes, but we've got a ton of questions here and they're really good ones. And and actually some very practical questions. For example, here is a question from Keith Dark for you, Kevin. How are you managing your possums? How are you managing the pests that we know just absolutely love your trees and all the birds, eggs inside them?
2: Well, to date we've been just doing nice shooting. That that that's all when people report they've seen a possum. You no, know, they people go up and there's many of the farm over their nephews, nieces that just go up and do night shooting on the farm in the forest. So it's very easy to recognize a forest that's been munched by by possums. So that's and we just keep keeping on top of it. I think as long as you keep on top of
1: it. Yeah. Problem. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. There's also a question here around eucalyptus plantations. Again, two questions, in fact, about eucalyptus. And one, one for you, Annabelle. Have you seen? Um, well, actually, and David, because I know you you hang around forestry types. Are there examples of eucalyptus being planted and uh, harvested in a sustainable way in New Zealand?
5: My comment on eucalypts, um, and I'm not a tree specimen specialist, so this comes from conversations with a lot of the big forestry managers, is that it comes back to something David mentioned before about right tree, right place, right purpose. And so with eucalypts, it really depends on what variety you're planting, and there are so many of them, and where you're planting it um, as to whether it can be sustainable and also whether it can be productive. in in terms of being commercially viable forestry crop. Not my area of expertise, but that's the advice that we have had when we've been dealing with some of the the forestry managers who are looking at planting different
1: specimens. David,
4: I just recommend that there's um, yeah there's group there's groups at the um, School of Forestry and University of Canterbury, the Drylands um, Eucalypts Research Team who are who are looking into this. So I I recommend recommend tracking down their work.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, You've found that link, Simon. Damien has a question. Oh, okay. Here we go. Um, but I do have a um, a question here from Jackie Amers as well. So Jackie is one of the contributors and has been on this on this, this series as well. And this is probably something for you, Kevin. It's about um, continuous cover forestry. You, you, uh, I think very early in the corridor, uh, you mentioned about harvesting your native forests, and you you talked about clear-filling them. Have you investigated the possibility of managing by a continuous cover, you know, so selective harvesting? Uh, That's a question for you, Kevin.
2: For native trees, no, we won't be clear-felling. We'd be selective logging. Uh Even, Even when the, like what people call wilding pines, I've no doubt that there's going to be pine trees that are growing, will be growing within, we'll just let them mature, and cut them down and uh-huh. hopefully that time there'd be the technology to be, to be able to extract them without too much damage to the remainder of the forest.
1: Okay, nice one. There's a question here from Don Scarlett, and perhaps one for you, David. How far away is Aotearoa from biodiversity offsets trading scheme? So not just an emissions carbon trading scheme, but an offsets for biodiversity?
4: So, so there were provisions already for that under the Resource Management Act that that was a requirement that um, regional councils could put upon um, developers that they would need to undertake offsets as part of um, as as part of their resource consents. Mm-hmm. That that wasn't used as much as it as it might have been. So presently of course the resource management Act is under review and that has certainly been an issue that was um, touched upon in the review as to the okay. extent to which um, mechanisms like this and other sorts of other sorts of financial mechanisms might be used by regional councils in order to increase investment into to ecosystem restoration
1: mm, it kind of raises another question um, which is come in from dame ann salmon which is the anomaly of having pinus radiata in permanent forests when they really only last 80 to 90 years uh, so she has a question about is it right that such trees would even be included in the emissions trading scheme as regarded as a permanent forest i don't know if ann- annabelle it could be one for you
4: <laughs> I mean,
5: I think it's the, more for
4: David. <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> the, the, the the permanent forest category, yeah, l- limiting that to forests which are made of native species or are which being, uh, are being transitioned towards native species is certainly, you know, one policy change that might be made. And I think I recall it being one that we suggested in the Aotearoa Circle report, Annabelle, that that is something that, that a change that could be made. To the ETS in order to um, yeah adjust that disadvantage that native forests have at the moment that they have access to to that permanent forest category in a way that they presently don't have that that unique advantage, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it it, it also raises. the the issues that Matt Walsh was talking about in his um, you know forestry system New Zealand carbon farming uh, that we're there you know using that short life or shorter life of pine trees as a way to transition to natives over the long run so I mean uh, whether, whether the category includes that or not um is, is another question which will need to be addressed by policymakers, and I refer everyone who's interested in this to the previous webinar where where that system is discussed.
1: Yeah, we uh, thank you. Um, we did talk at some length about transition management uh, from short term. Uh, as short term as you can get in forestry for using as what exactly what Kevin is doing um, on his land using Pinus radiata as uh, a, a, as a short term harvestable crop with a plan to transition, and that probably is a beautiful moment for us to to kind of bring this to a, a conclusion. And I would really like to throw back to Kevin and Waikato to to talk uh, give us some context. You know we. We're so used in New Zealand to having such short-term horizons, but right at the beginning of the conversation, Kevin, you, you gave us a number which kind of blew my mind. You talked about trees that, and a, a forest that you expected to be continued to be harvested and lived in for your children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren. I think you said 450 years. Tell us about that vision that you have, because that seems like a lot of years by usual business planning standards.
2: Yes, I yes it does sound a lot of years, but um the intent is still to look to help the future generations. I, I I don't think we can do much in the long term, but we can plan for it and if we work towards doing something now like we're thinking more about the water quality we're thinking more about uh trees like nut trees fruit trees rongoa trees you know to to have all these um these different options Yeah.
3: Look, I, I'm just picking up from where uh, Kevin has just ended. The native experience in forestry began a short period ago. If you're flying into Kerikeri Keri any day, and you just before you land, you will see the clear forest, uh, the pine forest that have just been cleared. That's 40 years of of pine forest in Argentina. Before that, we had no pine, and now the the, the first harvest. You can see it; um, it's there. And now we've got through the billion trees thing. We have a a, a partner in the crown to to deal with what you're looking at, or the replacement of that. Now, from tonight's conversation, it's really now given me a, a, a far better view of what we actually have. We've got 80 years of transition because we've got a patient investor in the crowd. Mm. And now uh, we're if we're really looking at this transition thing and all of the, the things that have been discussed, the four points, Annabelle, that you, you, you've raised, just gives us a better sight as to what the outcomes might be if we can now focus our uh, whole transition on the next 80 years while the crown is carrying the weight. But And and this last 40 years, Ngātihime has watched trees grow on our lands, on 5,500 hectares of Ngātihime land. And of that, we only harvested 400 hectares for our benefit. The rest of the trees were owned by somebody else. And we have just watched it being trucked out. This is our, you know, economic, this was supposed to be our economic savior. But the the other 5,000 hectares was trucked out by someone else. (laughs) And... uh, Our shareholders have not had one cent dividend in 40 years. And we were basically forced into forestry because our lands were said to be unproductive and here's something that's going to make them produce. And they certainly did. Except that we didn't see any of that economic benefit save 400 hectares. And now... You know, everybody else, Carter Holtz and everybody else who grew the forest and pay it. You know, to be fair, they paid us the lease for the land and all we did was lease for 40 years. Mm. And then we paid all that in rates and what have you yeah. because we still owned the land. So our experience, when when I was listening to all of this, it just shapes my mind as to what is ahead of me as a trustee for those lands for the, in the next 80 years. I'm not going to be there to see the end result, but I'm going to be there now to make sure that the, that all of these things we talked about tonight are given wide, uh, uh, the conversation gets really much more in-depth, and I'm thankful I hooked up tonight <laughs> because it's broadened my thinking.
1: Well, we're and thankful. What Jordan. I will do
3: as a forester as a trustee, in advancing the native enterprise, that's going to change. We crushed uh, five thousand hectares of native native bush, basically, to grow pines. That's what we did to our estate in the last forty years.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Eighty years is not going to put it right, but I think we, as Kevin has pointed out, we can start a scheme that returns the balance. Now, 80 years is not going to get us all the way down, but hey, while I've got a patient investor, I'm going to certainly be milking the opportunity. <laughs> I'm not milking the government, milking the opportunity to do something that's going to be far more effective than the last 40 years.
1: Uh, I ora. That was really interesting to hear and Gosh, you know, we could do another whole episode on you know, sort of colonialism all over again when it comes to forestry because we continue to get it wrong uh, with ecosystem services. Even, you know, even that is kind of questionable language, this language around um poor land or marginal land is a term that has been discussed on these on these webinars as well as kind of inappropriate inappropriate I hate that word but it's the wrong language to to use about land which could be uh returned to our beautiful Nahiri. look we don't have time unfortunately to continue this korero but it's been really interesting and I I'm really grateful for your time for all of you, David, Annabelle, Waharoi, and Kevin. Uh, really interesting discussion, so much more to learn. And I'm grateful for you for all of you joining us to talk about these really important matters for New Zealand. So, Inohara, uh, thank you for your time and, and thank you to our panelists.
0: To learn more about Pure Advantage and the work we do, visit pureadvantage.org. Watch the stunning short documentary, Otatu Nahiri and read insights from hundreds of expert contributions that highlight New Zealand's strategic advantages by putting the environment at the centre of all business decisions. Remember to follow us on Instagram, and if you found this conversation valuable, please rate this podcast, share and subscribe. Thanks again for being on the journey with us.